thank you very much for, for coming and deciding to spend your afternoon nap in this particular <laughs> workshop. <laughs> um, I really appreciate the invitation to, to be here and uh, to be joining you. So thank you for, for coming along. Our, our topic is sexuality and witness. And, uh, you know, my, my assumption is that of, of all the areas, I mean, Christian witness isn't easy at the best of times anyway. Very, very, very occasionally, just the most ridiculously, absurdly easy evangelistic opportunity comes up. But those are, those are few. Most of them are things that you have to kind of slightly steal yourself for and, and kind of think, right, here we go, come on. But I'm guessing of, of all the contexts and situations where we could find ourselves having to testify to our Christian faith, probably the, the context that most naturally intimidates us is discussions around sexuality uh, for reasons that you don't need explaining to you. Um, to finish off, uh, to start off where I, I finished last night, um, we were looking at how culture has, has got to where it is. Uh, the, the kind of changes that have taken place in the last 10, 15 years, why we are where we are, that the conclusion basically was that whereas 20 years ago Christians were seen as, as old-fashioned and quaint in our views on, on human sexuality, now we're just seen as dangerous. And it's a, it's a new space for much of the church to have to occupy. Uh, for most of us in our, in our lifetimes, We've never had that label thrust on us before. Uh, we've always been, you know, unfashionable and all that kind of stuff. But we've, we're not used to being painted as the bad guys. And it's just interesting seeing how differing areas of the Christian world uh, respond to that. Some respond with, with real anger and sort of, well, if you're going to call me names, I'm going to call you more names kind of thing. Others will just assimilate because they, they can't cope with that emotional pressure of being the bad guy. Uh, and others withdraw entirely. And I guess if I have any kind of thesis at all, it's that, that I want us to engage. Um, I, I think the, the message of Jesus is good news. And it's good news whatever area of life we happen to be talking about. Uh, just because a, an issue is so culturally explosive doesn't mean... Jesus doesn't have blessing to give to people in that area. So what I want us to do this afternoon, and I'd, I'd love your involvement in this as well. I don't just want this to be me jabbering away. Um, plus, if, if I have interaction with you, it's one way of verifying you are still conscious. <laughs> so um, I want to run through a few things um, that help me from a kind of an apologetics point of view when it comes to human sexuality. Um, most of these lessons are ones I've learned the hard way. I've had a, a, a kind of catastrophic conversation with someone and I've gone home and thought, okay, what did I, what should I have done? What can I learn for next time? And sometimes that's just one of the ways that we learn. Uh, and you think, okay, that, that clearly was a, 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 a silly thing to say. What, what could I have said that would have been better? So these, these um, points I'm going to share with you now are, are not me saying, hey, I've got this all sussed out. I'm still course correcting and, and learning and it, even if I'd got this all nailed down completely right culture will have changed again by next week anyway and so <laughs> it's a constantly shifting target moving target I'm also conscious just to complicate factors even more that not only is this culturally explosive but the ways in which it's culturally explosive vary from place to place and from generation to generation and so certain terminology in one context is seen as 
as kind of neutral and non-aggressive in, in the same wording in a different part of the Western world can suddenly be taken in a very different way. So minefields there are a plenty and that's that's part of the it's actually part of the adventure it's part of the challenge um so i'm going to list out a few things that have that have kind of helped me engage in these topics i i get to do this fairly frequently last week i was at durham university in the united kingdom uh speaking at a, a university mission there and my my job all, all week was to to do a talk every lunchtime um and to have a, on a kind of contemporary apologetics topic, give a, a, a sort of 20, 25 minute talk and have Q&A with the students and sort of see what happened, you know, as a result of that. Um, and I, one, of the, one of the talks was on sexuality, why does God care who I sleep with? But interestingly, you can do a talk on anything. And the moment there is Q&A, one of the first questions will always be something to do with the Christian view of sexuality. So you can be giving a, a presentation on quantum neurology, if, that, if such a thing <laughs> even exists. And you, could, you might be, you know, breaking new ground for human knowledge in your presentation. But the first question will be, what do you think about gay marriage? So there's, we don't always get a choice as to whether we engage in these issues. Sometimes the, the conversations come and find us. So here are a few things um, that I hope will, will help. And then we can have some discussion around that okay that's what's going to happen anyway so even if you're not okay that's <laughs> what i'm going to do um i've got a few points the, the first thing is we we do need to learn how to listen well and i think sometimes we we overlook this we assume well i've got ears so i do know how to listen i'm kind of i'm okay on that one um but the the scriptures have so many um words of exhortation to us on this issue that we shouldn't presume we, we know what we're doing. Um, so let me share with you a couple of proverbs that have really meant a lot to me in the kinds of conversations I've had, particularly with, with secular university students. Um, proverbs 18, verse 13. Uh, let me read to you. I work with Ravi Zacharias Ministries. Now I'm a, I'm a sort of full-time apologist and evangelist. Prior to that, I was a pastor. And I think this verse applies equally to any kind of pastoral ministry and certainly evangelistic ministry it's an amazing verse uh, proverbs 18 verse 13 says if one gives an answer before he hears it is his folly and shame um, if one gives an answer before he hears it is his folly and shame if you study the book of proverbs folly and shame are big words <laughs> they're significant words and the proverb is, is cautioning us against answering before we've sufficiently listened. Now, because we have a high view of proclamation, because we have a high view of the word, sometimes what that means is we, we go into speaking mode before we're ready to. And so somebody maybe gets, you know, half a sentence of their question out. We're thinking, OK, this question's about this. I know what I think on this. So I just start splurging out all the things that I say on the given topic, we actually need to listen carefully. Otherwise, we will be giving an answer that in our own minds is true and right and faithful, but which Proverbs might say actually was folly and shameful. Um, it is... Okay. No, 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 I've, um, that was fun. Um, 
it, it is entirely possible to say the right thing at the r in the wrong way and at the wrong time. And it's listening that will help us discern those kinds of dynamics. Um, another proverb just over the page is Proverbs 20, verse 5. Again, this is incredibly significant for us. The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. But a man of understanding will draw it out. In other words, the purpose in someone's heart is not normally immediately evident. Not always even to them either, to be honest. And so when, when you have a conversation with someone, it might be someone you know well, it may be a complete stranger, but this kind of topic comes up. Don't assume you know why they're asking the question. Uh, the man of understanding, we're told, will draw out someone's purpose. That means, you know, if the purpose of a man's heart is like deep, deep water, we've actually got to do a bit, little bit of fishing before we can understand what, what the real issue is behind what they're saying to us. Uh, my boss, Ravi Zacharias, often says to us, don't answer the question, answer the questioner. Because very often the, the question that you are being presented may not reflect what is actually going on in the heart of the questioner. And so we, we need actually to take a moment and, and sort of ask our own questions of them and, and talk a little bit more with them to find out what might actually be the real issue. Um, this is just obviously proverbial wisdom but that applies to all situations. Um, it's particularly helpful when it comes to conversations about sexuality. They, they often get very highly charged uh, very, very quickly. I find just adopting a posture of genuine curiosity towards them and of real listening often immediately lowers the temperature significantly. I mean, it undermines that, that reputation that we sadly have that we are just hateful of our LGBT plus friends. And so actually to take an interest in someone else's story and to find out more about what they think undermines that. Um, it's a very immediate, tangible way of, of undermining that. Um, it also gives us a sense of where to begin in terms of how we share Christ with them. I remember doing a, a occasionally I, I do Q&As at different universities and that kind of thing. And I remember doing one at a, at a university up in Canada and a lot of the campus LGBT advocacy group were present at this particular event and lo lots of the questions came from them. And as you can imagine, many of the questions had a fair bit of topspin. And this one particular student came up to the microphone and said, I'm um, transgender pansexual. And I was thinking, okay, I'm not entirely sure I know what that means, but we'll put park that for one moment. And they said... Um, how could you, they kind of listed a litany of, of crimes that the church has committed over the years and said, given the church has been misogynistic, pro-slavery, racist, a whole list of things, how would you ever expect someone like me to set foot inside a church? And as they started to speak, I was thinking, whoa, okay, there's, there's some anger here. As they kind of continued to, 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 to speak, um, I just had this sense that it wasn't anger, 
that was driving them, it was fear. I think the Lord just kindly gave me a, an insight I wouldn't otherwise have had. And so I remember thinking, okay, it would entirely miss the point of this encounter if my response was just to correct their, you know, reading of church history. It would have missed the point if I'd gone sort of, well, actually here are 17 reasons where you're wrong and where Christians actually have been at the forefront of many of these things that you've just accused us of. What they needed to know was that they had been heard and that I was safe. And I remember thinking, this, this person is, is frightened of me. To them, an evangelical pastor is someone who wants to attack them. And I remember thinking, just profoundly sad about that, because I don't think anyone has ever been frightened of me in my life. But now this precious group of people are frightened of me because they think I hate them. And so my, my job as an ambassador of, of Christ in that particular moment was actually to show them that that wasn't the case. And not to answer before I had heard uh, sufficiently. Uh, sometimes when, when someone asks me what feels like a confrontational question, I might say to them if it's in a kind of conversational setting I'd, you know i'd love to hear a bit more about your story i mean it will, i'll certainly share what i think but if you're happy to tell me a little bit about your own journey on this this issue i'd, I'd love to hear it and normally when people do that and they start to share their you know their own experiences and, and so on you really do get a feeling of where you need to begin in sharing jesus uh, if there's been a huge amount of hurt and rejection then actually I like to start by sharing with them the fact that Jesus is the one who said he would not break a bruised reed. He's someone you can entrust your, your most tender bruises to. Uh, he's not going to stomp all over you. If someone is, is evidently confused about, about their identity and, and who they are and what that means, I might take them to Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. Because at the end of that, she goes back to her town and says, come and meet a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Jesus is someone who uniquely makes sense of our lives. But you've often got to have a bit of a, of, of a conversation to even get a sense of, of where to start. So that's the first thing. We do need to learn how to listen well. Uh, second thing is, and I'll mention a bit more about this in the, in the next main session, is we need to show people show people how the gospel treats all of us the same. Again, one of the big misconceptions, and I, I drew this out last night, is that the Christians are just discriminatory and unfair. Uh, we have one set of rules for one group of people, a different set of rules for another group of people. And so what I try to do is, is always to show how Jesus levels the playing field. Whatever area of life we're talking about, Jesus always puts us in the same boat. Uh, the particulars are different, the symptoms will vary, but we all fundamentally have the same condition. And so when it comes to discussions about sexuality, I don't want to get into conversations about what the Bible says about gay sex before I've had a conversation about how Jesus' sexual ethic challenges every single one of us. So my advice on this is... is is generally don't say to someone what you can't say to everyone, particularly in these kind of 
initial conversations and encounters when you've had more time with them and, and they've got a, a, a better sense of the wider context of, of the Christian faith, you can begin to get to some of the particulars. Um, I was doing a, a talk somewhere once and a lady came up to me afterwards and she said, listen, I'm a lesbian. Um, so what is your response to me? What do you think about the fact that I'm a lesbian? So I thanked her for, for coming to, to ask me that. And I said to her, I said, it's interesting, Jesus has some really challenging things to, to say about human sexuality to every single one of us. And she's, she said, why? What does he say? And I said, well, he says, well, actually, we're all kind of broken in this area of life. Uh, we're all disordered. And she was asking more about that. We had a, we had a very lengthy conversation that, that not once referenced her specific lesbianism. Not because there's, there's nothing the Bible has to say about it, but because if I had answered her question by saying, well, you being a lesbian means you're a sinner. What she would have heard was that she was being singled out. She would have assumed I was taking a position of moral superiority. And she would have assumed she was being treated differently to everybody else. And so the first thing I wanted her to know is that what Jesus says on these issues, none of us get off the hook. I wanted her to see how this... Christian sexual ethic lands on every single one of us before she would then find out how it lands on her in particular. Does that make sense? So try not to say to someone what you can't say to everyone. The, the other advantage of that is it's, it's a great way of showing someone that you don't think they're a freak. Um, and this is one of those things you have to show them, you can't tell them. Uh, because if, if someone comes up to you of whatever kind of demographic or background, and if you say to them, listen, I don't think you're a freak, it, it's one of those denials that really does make you sound guilty of the very thing you're denying. <laughs> um, so I've had this particularly talking to, to, to transgender folks that actually sometimes they're expecting you to think they are a freak. That's what they think Christians think about them. It's easier just to, to find a way of, of putting yourself in the same boat as that person. Not to claim to know what they experience or to know how it feels to be them. But to show them that fundamentally Jesus actually puts us in the same boat. Say with a, with a transgender student I might talk about the fact that actually none of us has a straightforward relationship with our own body. We all suffer from, from the brokenness of the flesh. Or I might talk about how actually all of us at a very deep level are confused about who we are. That's, that's a given in, in biblical Christianity. Our, our hearts and minds are, are darkened by sin. So we just don't have access on our own to who we truly are. So it's a way of saying, listen, what, what you are going through is merely one type of what is true for everyone. And so if you're a freak, then I'm a freak too. So don't say to someone what you can't say to everyone. Uh, number three, we need to keep pointing people to the goodness of God. Um, I think one of the mistakes we've, we've made in, in over the years is we've, we've really only spoken in terms of the biblical prohibitions. And we've not really given a broader context for those prohibitions or any rationale for why they're there in the first place. Our, 
our only kind of communication on this has been the things that we don't approve of. Now, the trouble with that is that is not the whole message of Christianity. The whole message of Christianity is not just a series of prohibitions. It's, it's good news. Last time I checked, that was what we, what we call it. If we only give people the negatives, we are actually not faithfully honoring <laughs> the overall positive of the gospel. So a friend of mine has um, a, a little girl. I remember when she was um, three years old, she was a three-nager. And she used to get very, um, what's the best way of describing this? She, she wasn't always relaxed about what kind of food she was willing to eat. Let's, let's put it that way. You probably know that dynamic. And I remember going around there for dinner once, and the, the previous time I'd been around, it had been very tense. You know, food had been thrown across the, the room and all the rest of it, and I did apologize afterwards, but she started it. Um, <laughs> anyway, this, this particular time I, I went around, my friend said, hey, last week she told me her favorite food is spaghetti, so I thought, just because you're coming around, I thought I'd make spaghetti, and that way there'll be you know, peace in the land tonight. So he made spaghetti, he served spaghetti, spaghetti was presented before her, and spaghetti, it turns out, was rejected. Um, she said, in effect, you know what, I do reserve the right without any previous notification to change my mind about what is and what is not acceptable food for me to eat, or something like that. That was the, that was the gist of it. And my friend, as you can imagine, was, was kind of beside himself going, but you just, you literally just told me you know, just a couple of days ago, this was your favorite food. And it, it was a couple of days ago. <laughs> and I mention that because I think sometimes people have that view of what God is like. He's a God who just arbitrarily throws out, I don't like this and I do like that and I, I change my mind. And that's why we keep hearing that objection. But how come you, you obey this commandment from the Bible, but not that commandment? The view people have is that these are all just arbitrary, toddler-like edicts that come down from heaven. There's no shape or rhyme or reason to them. And so part of our responsibility is to show that actually God's commandments, they, they, they have a particular shape and rationale to them. They, they mean something. They express something. And so a good exercise for any of us is anytime we come across a prohibition in the Bible, is to ask ourselves, what good thing is being protected by this prohibition? What is the positive behind the negative? In what way is this prohibition actually good news for us? What is it preserving for our benefit? Uh, that is necessary on, on any issue. I think it's especially necessary on the Christian sexual ethic because people just assume we only have bad news to offer on this. And so we need to show people, actually, that there's the, the God who says these things, hard though they are to hear, is a God of unfathomable goodness. You know, we're told in the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. When it comes to Christian, sexuality, Christian view of sexuality, that, is, that still applies. I want people through our Christian sexual ethic to taste the goodness of God. I can't remember if I mentioned this last night or not, but people are, are not going to care if what we say is true, if they don't believe it's good. 
So it's not, it's not enough simply to rehearse the biblical prohibitions. We need to explain the positive view of biblical, the positive biblical view of sexuality that accounts for those prohibitions, that makes sense of them. In other words, we need to show them the goodness of God. Um, next, number four, uh, we need to answer narrative with narrative. Uh, one of the things that has been behind the, the shifts that have happened in our kind of Western culture in, in the last five, ten years is it's not that people have, have read lots of books on homosexuality or transgenderism and, and now they're in favor of those particular things. What has shifted people's thinking has been a constant, steady drip feed of narratives. Um, over and over and over and over again. Through, through songs, through YouTube videos, through, through Netflix shows, whatever it is, we've been, we've been given the same narrative over and over and over again. And the narrative is some variation of you have a sexual identity, discover your sexual identity, live out your sexual identity, and that is the way to true flourishing. And so that is the script now that our, our culture follows on these issues. So when a, a 12, say, 13-year-old discovers perhaps sexual attractions to people of the same sex and they, they begin to kind of speak about those things, the cultural message is that is who you are. You have got to live that out. You've got to be true to that. Otherwise you're actually harming yourself. That is the narrative we, we have just been breathing like oxygen for the last 15 years. And so it entirely misses the point of those narratives simply to respond with kind of bullet points of, of correction and critique. Uh, one of the things we need to do is to show that actually the church has better narratives than our culture does. The church has better stories when it comes to human sexuality than our culture does. And so we need to, to access and, and disseminate the testimonies of Christians who've wrestled with these things and yet maintain that the word of God is good and life-giving. So I, I'm grateful. I'm just thinking of a few books I've read in the last 18 months. Jackie Hill Perry's book. Um, I always get the title wrong. Gay Girl, Good God. I sometimes get those words around the wrong way in a sense that is not good for my doctrine. Um, <laughs> gay girl, good God. It's an amazing book. Uh, or you think of Rosaria Butterfield's book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Again, someone who was um, very much a, a lesbian activist who was actually involved in writing some of the legislation that, you know, many of us as Christians would now be uncomfortable with, Rosaria not the least, but came to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, Tomorrow, a book is, is, is released officially tomorrow called Born Again This Way by Rachel Gilson. Again, someone who had been a lesbian, was converted at university, uh, now, you know, reveling in the grace and goodness of Jesus Christ. We need to know that these narratives exists, ex exist. Um, th there are plenty of them. Uh, there will be stories like this in our church that we need to, we need to, uncover and, and where appropriate 
share with people. Yeah. Sure. Um, again, I'll have to be careful with this one. Gay Girl, Good God <laughs> by Jackie Hill Perry. Um, not Good Girl, Gay God. That's, that would be a different, a different <laughs> book entirely. Um, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by Rosaria Butterfield. Um, what was the other one I mentioned? Rachel Gilson, Born Again This Way. I'll give you a, 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 a male one as well. A Change of Affection by Beckett Cook. Uh, he's down in L.A., so he's, he's geographically proximate, if that makes any difference. Um, again, just, just showing that there is more than one script that is out there. There's more than one type of narrative. So it's, it's why, actually, Christian testimonies, I think, make a big difference on this. And they're, they're harder to refute because, again, because of the way the kind of identity politics intersectionality thing is, is kind of set up in our culture. If, if someone is speaking into this issue out of their own personal experience, it's much harder for our culture to refute them. It doesn't stop them trying to write off those kinds of testimonies, but actually it, it's harder work for them to do so. And actually, our own testimonies of whatever our own species of sexual brokenness has been, all of us have found the teaching of Jesus Christ when it comes to our own sexuality deeply exposing, deeply confronting, deeply challenging, and gloriously good. So it may be that your story isn't one of, well, I was a, I was a gay person and now I'm a Christian, but it may be I was a porn addict. And that was how I was you know, trying to satisfy my own s broken sexual urges or whatever it might be, your own story on this is going to make an impact. So we need to answer narrative with narrative. That, that, uh, that works on, on more than one level. When it comes, firstly, the, the personal narrative level that we've just talked about, but also when it comes to the level of the, the Bible's own meta-narrative. One of the narratives with which we need to answer the narratives of our culture is the narrative of the whole Bible, what the whole Bible is about, because human sexuality is not incidental to the storyline of the Bible. Uh, one writer, uh, Christopher West, often puts it this way. He, he'll say that, that the Bible begins with a marriage, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and the Bible ends with a marriage, Jesus Christ and his church in the, in the, you know, Revelation 21 and 22. And the first marriage he describes as a trailer, like a movie trailer for the last marriage. It's meant to point to it. It's meant to appetize, give you an appetite for that ultimate marriage. Um, my dear friend Ray Ortland has written a book called um, Marriage... Oh my goodness, I've forgotten the title now. Marriage in the Shape of the Gospel, I think is the title. Whoever's the quickest Googler can let me know if I've got that right. Marriage and the Shape of the Gospel, and it, it basically is showing how marriage is one of the primary biblical categories for the gospel. It's one of the wraparound categories for how the story of God's love for us in Jesus Christ is articulated in the Bible. The Bible is, it turns out, a romance um, the prince leaves his castle, comes to us, slays the dragon, gets the girl. That's the story of the Bible. Uh, God has come to us as, as a husband. 
Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. And, and human sexuality has been given in part as a signpost, as a way of, of connecting us to that ultimate romance that is available for us in Jesus Christ. So we need to answer narrative uh, with narrative. Um, next week, I think it's, it's helpful to avoid kind of sound bites on this kind of topic. Um, this, this is probably more of a, of a risk if you find yourself speaking publicly about it. But even so, whether it's in the workplace or, or just with, with your own friends or family, Avoid being driven into giving a soundbite response to any of these topics. Uh, occasionally someone will kind of say to you something like, do gay people go to hell, yes or no? And the trouble with that is, is a monosyllable does not do justice to what we believe on this issue. In fact, neither monosyllable that is, you know, you could answer that question with is actually going to fully express what we really think and believe about this topic. Um, I remember hearing Rosaria Butterfield once say that there's no good answer to a bad question. So if the question is designed to kind of get you to say something that can be used against you, <laughs> just don't answer the question. Um, I find it helpful to say to, to people, if they, if they try and corner me on this, I'll, I'll say, listen, I, I would love to sit down and tell you what I think about this issue, but I'm going to need at least 15 minutes and I'll, I'll pay for the coffee. So if, you, if you're happy to come and sit down with me and have a proper conversation, I would love to explain what I think, but I, I can't boil it down to one sentence. If people are particularly pushy, I'll, I'll even say, listen, we're, we're talking about people and I think people deserve more than one sentence or more than one word. So avoid um, being drawn into sound bites. Um, next point is Im always embody both grace and truth. Grace and truth are not wholly separate virtues that we have in some ways to try to balance and if we if we end up with too much grace, we won't have enough truth. And then if we end up with too much truth, we won't have enough grace. We've misunderstood it if we think that's the case. Uh, John tells us in John, John's Gospel 1.12 that Jesus Christ was full of grace and truth. Grace and truth come together in Jesus. And as representatives of, of Jesus, we are meant to embody that combination of grace and truth. And so I want to suggest if, we, if you ever think you have one of those things without the other, it really means you have neither. Because in Jesus, they go together. Biblical grace, biblical kindness, biblical love is always truthful. And similarly, biblical truth is always kind and gracious. So if whatever concept of truth you have, you think that lacks grace, it's not biblical truth. And whatever concept of grace you might be working with that you feel isn't really truthful, that's not biblical grace. We need to embody both in all of our dealings. Um, we can get into more of that later on. 
Uh, final thing, and then we'll, we'll have more of a conversation, is we need, to <laughs> we need to keep pointing everyone to Jesus. I know that sounds like an obvious thing to say. Um, let me tell you what I mean by that when it comes to these discussions. Um, firstly, it means I want people to realize that what I believe on these issues comes as a direct result of what I believe about Jesus. Um, as, as a Christian, I am no, no more or less than a follower of Jesus. And Jesus teaches a particular definition of, of marriage, a particular understanding of sexual ethics. And so I believe what I believe about these things because I believe what I believe about Jesus. Now, people need to know that because people need to know their issue isn't ultimately with me. They do need to know their issue is with Jesus. Uh, they need to know that for two reasons. Uh, one is because people have got this notion today that Jesus was just kind of neutral and indifferent when it came to issues of sexual ethics. Uh, it's very hard to read the Sermon on the Mount and arrive at that conclusion. Uh, Jesus didn't take the Old Testament law and then kind of mellow it. <laughs> Jesus took the Old Testament law on sexual ethics and intensified it. So people need to know, actually, Jesus does have a view on these things. He's, he's not a pushover. And, and secondly, people need to know that actually, if they want to change our minds on sexual ethics, they are first going to need to change our mind on Jesus. And it's a, it's a good project to give your friends if they give you grief on this. So occasionally when someone says to me something along the lines of, listen, you just can't hold that view today. I'll say to them, listen, you, you may not know you're doing this, but you're actually telling me to stop being a follower of Jesus. I, I have these views because I follow Jesus. Do you have the authority to tell me to stop being a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you comfortable going up against him in that kind of way? And most people, in my experience at that point, will have enough kind of self-doubt and self-awareness to think, okay, fair enough, I hadn't, I hadn't realized that was the way it was. You know, I, I take that. Just occasionally someone will say, yeah, you should stop following Jesus. I'm telling you to stop following Jesus. And then that, that makes it much easier because you, you just have to say to them, well, okay, you just need to tell me what you've got going for you that Jesus doesn't have going for him that means I should follow what you say on this and not him. And by the way, he died for me and rose again. That's where the bar's currently set. <laughs> if, you can, if you can top that, I'm genuinely interested. But again, I, I, I want to frame it that way because I want, the, I want this discussion to turn ultimately on who is Jesus Christ. Not what kind of gay people did Paul know about in the, in the kind of Greco-Roman world. That's not the issue. It's interesting, but it's not the issue. The issue is, is, that, is Jesus Lord? If he is, I'm interested in what kind of gay people Paul knew in the Greco-Roman world, but actually it doesn't determine what I believe about this issue. It's also good to, to point people to, to Jesus on this because a friend of mine has a, a little saying on the wall of her office, and it, it struck me so deeply I, I memorized it. It says, um, those who hear not the music think the dancer's mad. Those who hear not the music think the dancer's mad. I love that. By the way, it's true. If you watch a music video and turn off the volume, <laughs> it, it looks ridiculous pretty quickly. <laughs> Put the sound back on and think, okay, that starts to make a bit of sense now. 
Uh, not much, always, but a bit. <laughs> and again, it's a way of saying, listen, the Christian life is never really going to make sense to someone who's not a believer until they understand who Jesus Christ is to us. That should be the case for all of us. Your life should be unexplainable to some extent, absurd to some extent, to your thoughtful non-Christian friends. They need to recognize there, I there is a gravitational pull on you that they are not experiencing that is, is making your orbit different to theirs. Uh, by the way, I don't, I don't know why I started talking about that, but that reminds me. Um, Neptune was the first planet ever to be discovered by mathematics. Up until then, planets have been discovered by someone presumably looking out of a window and going, oh, there's a planet, I haven't seen that before. And then, hey presto, you have a planet. Uh, Neptune was discovered by mathematics because a, a guy called John Adams in Cambridge was tracking the, the, the orbit of, I hate saying this, this planet's name, but you know the one I mean. Um, <laughs> let's say Uranus. Um, was tracking the orbit and, and realized there was a kind of weird irregularity in the orbit. There was a kind of kink in the orbit. It didn't go where you would think it would. And the only conclusion he could draw was that it was being affected by the gravitational pull of something else further out from the sun. And so getting his ruler out and doing some, some mathematics, he figured out there must be, he worked out from this the shape of this kind of irregularity of the orbit precisely where this other planet was and hey presto, there was Neptune. And people should be able to, by, by looking at the irregularities of our lives, now we're not consistent and perfect at this, but there should nevertheless be, a, be an actual and real irregularity in our lives that can only be accounted for by the gravitational pull of another, of another body on our lives. People should sort of be able to extrapolate something that is approximately Jesus-shaped from the ways our lives don't follow the kind of the normal expected, expected pathways and patterns. Does that make any sense whatsoever? I strayed into astrophysics there for a moment and that was inadvisable. So... I'm going to stop there. Questions, comments? We've got 15 minutes. Yes. Uh, You'll have to speak up so the whole room can hear. Uh, so this is more of a, a bigger thing question. Yep. Uh, maybe uh, it's also sort of a personal question for you. Um, like when you have conversations, like do you notice particular patterns? I want to hear more about the patterns that you hear and see in during conversations. Yeah, so I mean, I had this week in Durham last week, so I, I'm fresh with a whole batch of conversations in, in my head. And again, this will vary from place to place and, and so on. Um, and this ties in with what I was saying a bit last night, but the, the overriding issue that kept coming up in different guises was your, your words are harming people by not allowing them to fulfill their sexuality. And so what I kept getting into with these students was there is a whole 
undeclared assumption that you are making about human identity and human anthropology that you're not declaring, you're just assuming. So if your assumptions are correct, then yes, I'm causing harm to someone. But only if what you are assuming and not actually openly declaring about human sexuality is in fact the case. That is that it is at the centre of our sense of self and therefore at the centre of how we fulfil ourselves. So that, that seems to be, that seems to in different ways be the, the real issue behind most of the questions and conversations I was having. Um, I'll talk a bit, a bit about, about that in the next session as well. Yeah. I think, I think the only the only thing we can do in those instances. Do you all, do you all hear that? Uh, so basically, um, when when someone says to you that they no longer think you are safe because of your Christian convictions on this, and therefore they're not going to kind of entrust themselves to your friendship and that kind of thing, um, it is something that I don't think we can argue our way into proving. <laughs> that we're safe with someone. Um, it, it's just something we have to demonstrate over time. And, that, and it's a, it's a long-term project for some people. It may, it may take years for them to think, actually, this person really is for me. <laughs> um, because they, again, the, the anthropology is such that when, when you're not affirming of someone's sexual ethic, in their, in their understanding, you are rejecting the core of who they are. You're not just disagreeing with them over it's not like disagreeing with someone over their taste in music. It's not just disagreeing with someone over what you're into. It's saying, from their point of view, if, if their sexuality is their identity at the most fundamental level, then if you don't agree with their sexuality, you are rejecting who they are, which is why the, the stakes get raised so high so quickly in these conversations. And the only way, to, I think, to counter that is just to keep disproving it by by consistent um, non-intimidating tokens of care concern interest and love um, the trouble is we can we some people go into bulldozer mode on that and they try and think okay I'll, I'll show you how much I love you and then they kind of <laughs> it's that kind of <laughs> you know um, yeah
Yeah. It, that is such a, oh. yeah, we feel that, that same heaviness with you because we're, and the reason this is tearing us apart is because we are, we feel the heaviness of what that person means to us and we feel that the heaviness of what Jesus means to us and it's hard to know how to honor both at the same time. Um, in my head, I'm clear what I think and I'm clear what I believe. Um, but it's trying to think through, okay, what is the what is the best way of witnessing to that person? And it it's hard to know. Sometimes you might think, well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give an inch on my understanding of gender identity because that would compromise the truth. But often it will compromise the truth at the expense of having no ongoing relationship ever again with that person. So you then think, well, maybe I should be honoring my relationship with that person by accommodating their terminology rather than kind of insisting on my own. But then I feel maybe that's compromising the, the truth. You know, it, it's, it's, it's a wisdom issue. Um, a scripture I, I come back to on this, which may or may not apply, but I think it does. I'm happy to be shot down on this, is Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Uh, let me read these two verses to you. Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Okay, so if you answer a fool according to his folly, if you run with their wrong way of thinking, you end up becoming a participant in that folly. You end up they end up shaping you more than you end up shaping them. So we're all clear on that. Don't answer a fool according to his folly, right? Got it? Great. Next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly. <laughs> lest he be wise in his own eyes. So sometimes it's wise to run with someone's wrong way of thinking because by doing so, you can begin to expose why it doesn't actually work as a way of seeing the world. I... I <coughs> tentatively take those verses to mean that I, I don't want to say it's never right to use someone else's gender pronouns and I don't think I want to say it's never wrong to um, I think it's a I really do think it's a wisdom issue and for me it will depend most significantly on whether that person is is a Christian or not whether I you know what kind of pre-existing relationship I have with them or not I met a, a lovely trans student um, a while ago who very kindly agreed to share their story with me we had a lovely time not a christian um at the end of it i felt moved enough to say to them would it would it be okay with you if i prayed for you and you're very welcome to say it's you're not comfortable but i said would you mind if i prayed with you i just felt i felt really touched by your story and they said yeah please please do i'd, I'd love that now here's the thing when you're talking to someone you often don't use a pronoun the moment you then pray for someone, you do. And so I suddenly, as I started a sentence of my prayer, I was like, oh, no, I'm going to have to use a pronoun. And about <laughs> half a second's time, I had to make a sudden snap decision. Which way am I going to go with this? Um, in one sense, if I, if I use their pronoun, I'm kind of crossing my fingers theologically. And am I compromising? 
Is this the, the slippery slope, thin end, of the, thin end of the wedge? Will I be, will I be transgender by the end of the prayer simply by <laughs> going with their pronoun? <laughs> but on the other hand, I'm thinking, if I go with what I think is theologically right, that could, be really, that could really feel like a slap in the face to someone who's just disclosed so much of their own very painful story to me. So I kind of thought, okay, I don't know, but I'm going to use theirs for now and see, see what happens. Uh, and partly it was thinking, I actually, I want a second date. I want there to be another conversation. And so I was thinking, well, I'll, I'll use their pronoun for now as a kind of placeholder because I want us to have future conversations where hopefully in, in a way where the timing honours their sensitivities, I can begin to show them over time what I think is a, is a healthier Christian perspective on these issues. Now, if it was someone at my church who'd been a church member for 15 years and was one of the oldest who suddenly turned around and said, from now on, I want you to call me Susan. In that instance, I would say, you're going to have to cut my tongue out first. first. I'm never going to do that. So some of this is situational and will depend on, the, depend on the context. I think that's what those verses in Proverbs are kind of allowing for, that this is this is not a kind of right wrong. It's a kind of wise unwise thing. I, I hope that helps. Um, yeah. Less, less hope because it's less reversible. Yeah, yeah. There's, it, I mean, it, we we really do live in a very. It's a, it, I mean, it's just it, it's a fascinating time to to be around. Um, I love that line in um, Hamilton. Um, look around, look around. We're so lucky to be alive at a time like this. And they were singing that song just before the the Brits were about to, you know turn up with our big fleet to <laughs> blast the smithereens out of all of them um, <laughs> or try to anyway um, but you cheated and got the French involved which wasn't fair <laughs> anyway that's another that's another discussion but th that sense of this is a moment we're privileged to be alive to, to witness I think we're in that kind of context and I say that very aware of the, the challenges and the fact things are likely to get harder for us rather than easier um, but one of the, the things that is, is interesting to me is the number of secular voices now that are speaking against the transgender ideology and the number of people who have transitioned who are now saying that was a just a catastrophic mistake. Voices that our culture actually is silencing. Mm -hmm. And so I'd, I'd in one sense, they have less hope in this life of being able to reverse some of the things that they've done. Some of, the th some of those decisions they are going to have to live with in, in certain aspects for the rest of their life in this age. But there's not any less hope in terms of the, the age to come and even the enjoyment of Jesus in this age. Um, and, and, it, and it's why this, this ideology is so pernicious is because it is encouraging people we don't yet trust to drink alcohol or to vote to make a life decision about what, what gender they are and take steps that will have life, you know, we're sterilizing young children for, for life 
I mean, it's, it's horrific. It's, it's right up there with what the Babylonians were doing, sacrificing babies to Molech. It's no more dignified than that. So there's, there's hope. Be better to be a, a transgender person who comes to Christ and lives with the grief of what you've done. There is more joy and hope in that than being someone who's transitioned and feels happy in their transition. Uh, better, better to have grief with Jesus than any kind of fleeting pleasure without him. Okay, we have to be super quick because we've got to stop. I'll take one more question. And then actually we've got to scoot. I've got to scoot for the next thing, so I won't be able to stick around straight after this. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't understand what the question was. So they're, they're lesbian girls who want to be in leadership. Yeah, they're, yeah. and um, they've been faithful some of the music and everything. They've committed to Christ, but they still choose that lifestyle and they're committed. Okay. And so they want to be in certain leadership positions and, you know, met a, a, a policy that you have to be living for Christ, you have to be, yeah. you know, like, and they were tempted, but they were just living in faithfulness. Just yeah. They're choosing that lifestyle, so how do you approach that? Yeah, I, th I think that's, I think, the, again, the way you approach it is by saying, actually, that the fact that it's got to do with sexuality is, at this stage, irrelevant. The issue is, are we seeking to live in obedience to Jesus? Because, as you say, all of us experience temptation. New Testament shows us that. But we're all, we are all called to, to be living in obedience to Jesus. And even if none of us obey him consistently and perfectly, we are wanting, to, at least trying to, to obey him. So if someone is, is willfully living in a way that contradicts the teachings of the faith, that is a justifiable reason to exclude them from any kind of leadership. And in this instance, it isn't because they're lesbian. Because if they were, if they were tempted but were living in a way that promoted holiness, that wouldn't be an issue. Uh, so the issue is disobedience to Jesus. And you can, you can give them examples of other areas of life, other examples where, uh, again, you would have to come to the same conclusion. Yeah, the, the, the difference, though, is if, if you say no to them, you're the one who bears the cost. If you say yes to them leading, the youth group bear the cost. Okay.